situation like that is you usually have uh, like a large rider truck. And the church lives in the truck. And then Sunday morning, somebody has to get up early and pick up the truck from wherever it resides and drive it over to the elementary school. And a team of people have to explode the contents of that truck into an elementary school cafeteria or gymnasium or some other such place and turn it into a place for worship and children's ministry and all the things that come with that and pulpits and banners and decorations and toys. Uh, And then when church is done... um, you got to fold all those contents back up into their little Rubbermaid containers and on their little roller wheels and slide them in their strapped-up little place inside the rider truck and drive it back to its abode. And uh, after many years of this existence, the church finally found a property uh, near to the center of town, which is where they wanted to be, and purchased it and were finally able to have a church home where they could come and worship in their own space every Sunday. Uh, And just a little while ago, the leadership of this church said, let's do an examination of all of the the ministries, all the service teams, all the things that we are undertaking as a church, and ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Is there something in our ministry where we're doing it out of habit, and uh, maybe it doesn't need to be done, and we can refocus our energies? You know, what's truly important? And so they took a survey of all the teams in the church and what everyone was doing, and they discovered that they still had the church setup team. That the same team of people that for years had picked up the truck and drove into the elementary school and set up the church and put it back away still existed, and they were still scheduled to come to the church every morning and make sure that everything is just so. And even the very members of this team weren't really quite sure why they were still doing what they were doing. There's no clear purpose. We've had a church building for years, and yet they still had a, a setup team. Uh, and for us, to, to continue in the routine is always the easy thing. To ask, why are we doing this? W- what are we seeking? What is the purpose of this? Is, uh, is always the more difficult thing. We come to this passage. Jesus actually says his first words in the Gospel of John. We've been studying the person of Jesus for months John has told us about him in just this majestic piece of poetry. John the Baptist has bore witness to him. The Pharisees and Sadducees have been confused. People have gotten excited. And Jesus has yet to say anything. And the first thing that he says is he turns around and he says, What are you seeking? Which is not the way that I would respond. If I was the son of God and people were following me, I would turn around and I would say, yes, followers. But Jesus is more interested in drawing people out. That he has a a pattern, a habit of asking questions. That uh, it's less important to him that he have a movement or a cadre of following, a perception of being important. It's more important to him to draw people out, to know them, to ask good questions, and really to disciple them, that Jesus is more of a discipler than a recruiter. And so from the very beginning, he gets his very first followers, and his question is actually for them, why why are you doing this? What are you seeking And you can't 
ask questions like that of people who have just began to follow you without the conviction that for them to cease doing things for the wrong reasons is probably better than to continue doing the right things in the wrong way. That oftentimes the first step towards doing things for the right reasons is to, is to stop doing them for the wrong reasons. That Jesus is, um, is digging into them from the very beginning, from his first words, from the beginning of the relationship, building up a sense of self-awareness within them. That for Jesus, self-awareness is more important than going through the emotions. And so before talking about these disciples this morning, I thought it would be good for us to just stop for a moment and ask, what are you seeking? That many of you, if not all of you, come here. Sunday after Sunday, you are, you are followers of Christ. Why are you doing this? Are you coming here? Are you identifying yourself as a follower of Christ because you're seeking something? And if you're seeking something, what is it? What is it that you need? What is it that is motivating you to continue seeking, to continue following, to continue worshiping? want us to see a few things in this passage. The first one is, I think John, John the evangelist, John the author of the gospel, is setting up a contrast between the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and between the disciples. So if you remember a few weeks back, we did a sermon on John the Baptist and on the Jews, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees coming and asking John the Baptist questions. Now the disciples are coming to Jesus, so in one case they're going to John the Baptist, in another case they're going to Jesus, but I think that there's still a contrast being made. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John the Baptist. If you remember, the Sadducees came, and they wanted to know who John the Baptist was. Is he the Christ? Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet? They've got their theological categories, and they want to know into which category they should file John the Baptist. The Pharisees jump in with their question immediately afterwards, by what authority are you teaching these things? They want to know where his authority is coming from. That both Sadducees and Pharisees are coming from a place of knowledge, from a place of control, seeking to know how to respond to this new information. Somebody's out in the wilderness. They're preaching. They're baptizing people. They're gathering followers. Could be great. Could not be so great. But we know. And we have authority. And so we should go find out how we ought to respond. Because we kind of know how things work here. And so we need to go do an investigation. And that is the stance towards which they approach this new event, this new teaching, almost as if it was a a new intrusion. 
We hear in this passage that Jesus is followed by two disciples. Two disciples of John the Baptist. The next day, John, was, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. We find out in a little bit that one of them is Andrew, Peter's brother. At this point, the point this is being written, somewhere towards the end of the first century, Peter was well known, Andrew probably less so, and so John, the author of the gospel, has to explain who Andrew is by relating him to Peter. So John the Baptist has two disciples. One of them was Peter's brother. His name is Andrew. Who's the other one? Someone here is a friend of Andrew, and they're John the Baptist's disciple, and then they hear Jesus, and they follow Jesus, and the idea is that they become a follower of Jesus, and everyone else named in the passage is the apostle, is an apostle. Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, Peter, and the other guy. Which one of the apostles would have reason to be not named in this passage? It's probably John. And um, it also makes sense because the memory is so clear. See, there was the first day that John the Baptist talked about Christ being the Lamb of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. It says later on, it was about the 10th hour when this happened. That's 4 p.m. In our terms, it's the 10th hour since the sun comes up. That this was a vivid memory for him. He remembered the days, the time of day, where they were standing, and he slips himself into the passage unnamed. So Andrew and probably John are disciples first of John the Baptist. Now, why would you be a disciple of John the Baptist? What was John the Baptist's message? Remember from the other Gospels. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The one is about to come. Make straight the way of the Lord and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what kind of person is going to be drawn to leave their livelihood and their nine-to-five job and to go out into the wilderness and to follow around a man wearing camel hair, eating locusts, who is preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I think it's the sort of person who is really needing something. That you don't just leave your life and go out into the wilderness and follow someone preaching repentance of sins unless you really think you have a need to repent And there is something deeply wrong. And this man is preaching repentance and he's offering us a baptism, which is a baptism of repentance and washing of sins. I need to be washed. Something in my life needs to be straightened out. I don't know how. I don't know what is going to happen. But if this man is preaching words that connect with my heart, maybe he can tell me 
how to fix this world and to straighten out my life. It's the sort of person who is seeking something because life isn't working. They're not coming from a position of knowledge or of control. They are wanting to be led. They are wanting to be healed. They are wanting to be cleansed and washed by waters, to be freed from the corruption of their own brokenness. And they both immediately leave their master, teacher, and friend. In the context of the passage, I think it's abundantly clear that they're, these are not the sort of people that are on to the newest, latest, greatest thing. That they actually, of all John the Baptist's disciples, they have understood John the Baptist and his teaching the best. That this is what he has taught them to leave him. That was his mission, to point the way to the one. And so as soon as they're with their teacher and he says, that's the one, they go follow the one. And Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? Which is kind of awkward. But it turns out it's actually a great answer to the question. I've already talked about what I think they're seeking. I think they're seeking to be led. They need someone who will love them and who can guide them towards health. And us human beings, we don't start conversations that way. What are you seeking? Well, if you could just really care for us and be our good friend, we are hurting people, and we are hoping that you have some sort of guidance and knowledge. Do you have that? Cause, and would you love us? Could we just kind of go with you where you go? This would be really great. We just kind of want to be part of this. Could we be like a family with you? No one is that honest. But, but that they are they're opening the door. They're sort of implying from the side, um, where are you staying? We'll start the conversation there. They're, they're, they're wanting relationship. especially among men. We just don't talk honestly about this kind of stuff. I got myself a mentor recently. He's a church planting coach. He and I chat on the phone once a month. He kind of helps me walk through stuff and gives me advice and prays for me. And it was, a, it was a little bit of a dance to kind of solidify. You just don't walk up to a guy and be like, hey, I really need a mentor. Can we, can we set this up? This would be great. You kind of just, you just, you have to ease into it. That's how, how we men are. But they're looking for relationship. Which is the right thing to say with Jesus. I'm sure that they were delighted with his response. Come. Come and you will see. You see the same spirit in Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus calls Philip, follow me. Boom, done. He immediately follows. He's Look, you, you don't immediately follow someone who asks you to follow them unless you've already been looking for someone to follow. Nathaniel, he's got his questions from Nazareth. What is up with that? We'll come and see. Okay, I'll come and take a look. He's immediately won over. 
And all four of these guys, there's the five, there's the spirit. I want a relationship. I want to be invited in. I want to be led. Um, one of the funny things about the passage is there's actually a sense in which the Pharisees get it right and the disciples don't get it right. I mean, the Pharisees' categories are not wrong. There is a need for Elijah to come. The one from above, the anointed one, is on his way. They're asking the right questions. They're looking for the right things. Their categories are right. Elijah, the prophet, the one, where's your authority from? And yet the disciples um, make a lot of mistakes. Yet we found the one, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Well, he's not the son of Joseph, and he's not from Nazareth. They also repeatedly call him rabbi. He is not a good teacher. Later on, he actually questions people, why do you call me rabbi? It's, he's a lot more than a rabbi. But yet, even while getting the details wrong, they have gotten the heart right. That they are in the right place to be led, to be welcomed, to receive, to be loved by the Christ. The second thing I want us to see, after seeing the contrast between the way the Pharisees approach from control and the way the disciples approach from seeking, is to see the way that Jesus responds to the disciples. In verse 39, come and you will see. Verse 50, you shall see greater things than these. Verse 43, Follow me. Jesus is gathering them into himself. Rather than offering a moment of teaching or some deep theological tidbit, he responds exactly to what they're looking for because it's what he has to offer relationship and lordship. Come, come and see. It's a come and see kind of discipleship. It's a come with me, come be mine. And we know that relationship is part of this because he immediately starts saying these sort of loving, somewhat possessive things of them. He, he changes Peter's name as soon as he meets him. Simon, you shall be called Peter the Rock. The other Gospels make it clear it's because someday Peter will confess that Jesus is Christ. There's this moment of crisis. All the disciples leave. Jesus turns and says, who do you say that I am? The disciples are all like, and Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, that's right. That is the rock on which my church shall be built. It's Peter's confession. He gets to be the one that founds the church with the confession that Jesus is the Christ. So that hasn't happened yet. Peter doesn't know that's going to happen yet. But Jesus knows that he loves this guy. He knows what's going to happen, and he just can't keep it in. Oh, here he comes. It's Simon. You're going to be called Peter. You have no idea what I'm talking about right now, but trust me, this is going to be so good. Nathaniel comes, and he's like, yep, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no guile. Um, I've been familiar with this passage for a long time for obvious reasons. Um, and I've never been quite, what do you 
you know, and every now and then people were like, oh, yeah, Nathaniel, a man in whom is no guile. And I just, I, I don't know, what does that mean? It's never done very much for me. Uh, but a couple things. I think what it means is this is a man who is always honest. When you're around Nathaniel, this Nathaniel, you always get the real deal. Whatever he's thinking, good or bad, he will tell you straight up. Oh, Nazareth, Nazareth, that doesn't seem right. One of the things about being on the mainland is that every state, no matter what state, has to have some other state to look down on. When you're in California, you look down on Washington. When you're in Washington, you're so thankful that Idaho's there because you can look down on Idaho. This is probably like that. So no one in the first century thought that Galilee was cool, which is part of what's going on here, by the way, that the cool people from New York a.k.a. Jerusalem, came to check out Jesus. Well, okay, kind of interesting. Not sure what to do with that. We'll go back to New York, file that away. Then the, the people from Mississippi and Iowa come in, and they are the ones from Galilee that are interested in receiving what Jesus has to say. And even among them, you know, um, there's a joke that the best thing about Alabama is that it's not Mississippi, so at least there's Mississippi there. Th- th- that's, what, that's what Nathaniel's saying. He's from the other town. And there may be a theological aspect because the Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. Either way, Nathaniel's a guy who says what he thinks. I think Jesus is delight just I, here's what I think Jesus is just delighting in that. He he knows Nathaniel really well. He hasn't even met him yet. You know, you just have a friend and be like, "Oh, he is he's, you know, Tim Conkling. He is just wow, he is off the wall. What a great guy." You know, here comes Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That, um, in a sense, what's happening here is uh, it's like one of those movies where, where people lose their memory or you keep going through history over and over again, like 51st Dates or um, Groundhog Day, where there's a guy who's trying to date a girl. But because of the flow of the movie, he has this long history with her and she doesn't remember any of it. And so every time he meets her, he's like, oh, we have all this history. And she's like, we do. <laughs> that Jesus has known these guys since before time began and has loved them. And this is the moment when he meets them. They are seeking guidance and relationship from him. And boom, he's been there for a long time already. He's, he's wrapping them right in. Yes, come be part of what I'm doing. Come stay with me. Um. Nathaniel doesn't get a mention in any of the Gospels, by the way, um, but he's probably the same as Bartholomew. That in the other Gospels, they give the list, and right next to Philip always comes Bartholomew. Bar, in Hebrew and Aramaic, means son. So Bartholomew is son of Tholomaeus. So probably he is Nathaniel, son of Tholomaeus, which in John comes out as Nathaniel, and in the other Gospels comes out as Bartholomew. But there's... It's just a freebie. Um, All this makes so much sense, though, with Jesus' calling, his identity, who he is. Remember back in the prologue, we talked about this this chiasm where you kind of work from the outside in, and the most important thought is at the center of verses 1 through 18, and the most important thought is that by believing in Jesus' name, you can become children of God. And that's what's happened here. The Pharisees, Sadducees, they were not quite sure what to do with this. The disciples were. 
What they were desiring was to become children, and they believed, and immediately they received that status, that Jesus is already gathering them in as a hen gathers chicks under her wings. That's Jesus' analogy, by the way, that this is the way he's going to treat his people. I got to... um, I got to go on a date with my wife last night. I asked her if I could share this, by the way, so I hope this won't be too embarrassing. But it was, it, we just hung out at um, uh, Gordon Biersch on the water downtown and got to watch some ships come and go and ate dinner and just chatted for a while. And um, we ended up just talking about her story, her history as a person and a believer. And even though I've been married to her for six and a half years, it was so good just to hear again to remember and maybe understand in a deeper way what the Lord has been doing. That uh, she grew up in a family where neither her dad or her mom believed, didn't have a lot of friends that believed. It's a really broken, dysfunctional community in her family and her network of friends in high school. And somehow in the middle of that, the Lord was at work that as an elementary student, she came to her parents and said, can we go to church? And uh, in high school, when her friends are doing all these crazy things, just something inside of her said, I don't, I don't want to do that. And my takeaway is that since before the beginnings of the heavens and the earth, for whatever reason, Jesus said, this one is mine. And when he says that, it doesn't matter where you come from or who your parents are or what their influence is or whether there's any reason for you to believe or not believe that something happens in your heart so that as a six-year-old, you can say, I want to go to my father's house. No one's told me that. I have no reason to know. I just know. I want something. I need something there. And he's been faithful to her all the days of her life. That's what I mean when I say that over and over again. This is the Lord's work. It, he does it. I'm not quite sure what to do with that, but it's, I think it's clear in Scripture. that He just decides, this one is mine. And when he does that, he makes alive, and he makes aware, and he makes need and desire for relationship. And when you finally meet him, come and see. Come and be part of what I'm doing. Come into my home. Stay where I am. Walk with me all the days of my life. Well, how do you know if you have the kind of faith that these earliest disciples had? as opposed to the kind of faith that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had? Well, I don't really like the answer, but I think it's clear from the passage. You know that you're alive in this way when you can't stop yourself from telling other people about it. Because that's what everyone in this passage does. That's the Lamb of God. Let's go follow them. What are you seeking? Where are you staying? Come and see. i got to tell my brother about this. This is so great. Verse 41. The first thing Andrew does is go and find Simon. 
Jesus is like, all right, let's go up to Galilee. He meets Philip. Follow me. Philip's like, this is so great. I got to tell Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, uh, Messiah's not supposed to come from Nazareth. Also, Nazareth is kind of like Mississippi. And Philip's like, just come and see. Dude, just, just come and see. Nathaniel's like, okay, I'll come and see. It's, 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 it's automatic. It is not an evangelism program. Nobody has been trained. There's not a pamphlet involved. Half of their evangelistic content is not accurate. But there's something so genuine about it that it's actually better. That they have been seeking, finding, longing, and they've found it, and it's so great, other people got to know about this. When in your life have you been so excited about something you immediately had to tell other people? Usually I stop myself because I realize right away that it's unlikely that other people will share my enthusiasm for whatever eccentric, you know, eccentric thing I just got all excited about. But this is so much more passionate than that. Andrew's message, by the way, is that Jesus is Messiah. And John translates that for us, Christ, neither of which word means that much to us. Messiah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means anointing. Christ is a Greek version. If you like translate that into Greek, you end up with Christ. In the Old Testament, um, David was anointed as king. The priests were anointed. Aaron was anointed as the first priest. Elijah was anointed as a prophet. The anointed one is the one on whom the God has set his spirit. He is God's anointed one. Jesus, as the anointed one, is the anointed one par excellence. This is the greatest of all of the anointed ones. So that's what Andrew is saying. We found the anointed one. It's like Elijah, David, Aaron. This is better. So it's a title. When we say Jesus Christ, it's not like first name and last name. It's Jesus, personal name, Christ. That's his office. Jesus, the anointed one. Philip's message is similar. We found him of who the prophets wrote that for generations the scriptures have been telling us someone is coming, someone is coming. That the anointed one is going to be sent, the son of God on whom his favor rests. We think we found him. You should come check this out. I think my word um, to myself and to all of us, um, would not be to go out and engage in some snappy evangelistic campaign. But to ask ourselves, what are we seeking? And are we seeking what Jesus is offering, and have we found it? And somehow, have we gotten so excited about it that we really think it's worth telling other people about? Because if, if we work on that piece the telling other people part about it, that it'll just happen. Because that's what happened here. It just, it just comes out of you. Jesus actually says later on that um, if you believe in him, he'll fill you up to the extent that rivers of living water will come out of you. In the Greek, it actually says out of your navel. Multiple rivers will just, just come out of you. Just can't stop it. Not a stream or a trickle. 
or even a single river, multiple rivers. I've, during confession time, spent most of the past couple years apologizing to the Lord for not talking to him very much or needing him. So I think the Lord is really working on me here. This one hit me hard the more I realized what was going on here. But that is our, that is our calling, our need, to need, long for, desire him, to desire relationship, to come and see, to walk with him, to be with him, to be loved by him, to be children of God. And if we can receive that, if we can cultivate that, the life part just comes out of us. Let's pray.